0: Let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father, we do pray that even as we sung, that you would help our souls to be still within us over these next minutes. What is a hard text, may our minds not drift to the things of this past week, or The things later today or the things of next week, or the distractions that there might be in this room, and we not be distracted from the humility and glory of our Savior. May you even over these next minutes lift us up into the very heights of heaven. We might look upon him anew, might find him to be more lovely and beautiful and that you might receive the glory and the praise that comes forth from our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. May you receive all the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face, and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We have seen over the years that we've been in the Gospel of Matthew that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes and even the high priests have sought to arrest Jesus, that they might arrest Him to eventually put Him to death. And I think back to John 5 and I think, oh, that they had only listened to Jesus' admonition there in John 5 where... He said to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here are men who knew the Scriptures. They were avid students of the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures better than, I would dare say, almost every single person in this room. They had the prophecies. And they could have tested what they saw of the life of Christ. They could have looked at the prophecies and said, does He actually fulfill these prophecies? And they would have seen that He was born in the town of Bethlehem, that He was from the tribe of Judah, that He was a descendant of David. They would have seen that as was prophesied, that He gave sight to the blind, and that He gave hearing to the deaf, and that He healed the lame. They would have seen as was prophesied that he raised the dead from the grave. But they were unwilling. They were unwilling to consider. They were unwilling to study. They were unwilling to pray. They were unwilling to contemplate. Was he indeed the prophesied Christ? And instead of receiving him, they sought to condemn him. And to kill him. The question is why? Why didn't they consider the prophecies? You know, we often call the religious leaders of Jesus' day hypocrites. And that's right. They were absolutely hypocrites. Jesus himself will call them hypocrites. They will be called whitewashed tombs but at least in relation to their seeking the messiah i would say eh, it's maybe less that they were hypocrites and more that they were just self-deceived that they they wanted a messiah they were seeking after a messiah they believed that they were pursuing truth and helping to usher in that Messiah, when all the while, though, they were combating truth. They were self-deceived. They didn't see it. How does that happen? Well, as we discussed last week, sin, as you multiply sin and as you continue to indwell in sin, sin has this hardening effect upon the heart and upon the mind and upon the soul. And eventually you have ears to hear, but you cannot hear. You have eyes to see, but you can't see. And so they couldn't hear and they couldn't see. They remained unteachable. And so they sought his death. I want to try and work our way through this passage this morning. Uh, I really want us just to focus on Christ as we're going through this and think about this scene that's before us. And I want to do it in five ways this morning as we go through it. I want to look at the court assembled against Christ, the Son of God, the court assembled. Second, the charge that is brought against Christ, the Son of God. Third, the character of Christ, the Son of God. And then fourth, the condemnation of Christ, the Son of God. And lastly, the conclusion that we will see here in this passage. So first, the court that has been assembled against Christ, the Son of God. Jesus will experience different trials over the course of this last day of His earthly life on this Good Friday. If we were to turn to the Gospel of John, we would see that there was a court an informal court that was assembled before this court, and it was there before Annas, the high priest. Annas had been the previous high priest. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who we have in our text, the current high priest. And because he was the former high priest, he still had some, some authority in the Jewish world. And so, as they arrest Jesus, they bring Jesus first to Annas. Now it could be, and I think likely, that this is all in one home. You see the courtyard in the middle, it would have been a square as was, was common during this time and they bring Jesus to this home and you have Annas, the former high priest, in on one side of the home and his son-in-law and his daughter and their family, Caiaphas, on the other side of the home and in the middle of this courtyard that Peter has gathered in with the soldiers that are there. And so Jesus is brought before Annas, the former high priest, and there he is charged before Annas in this kind of informal trial, and there Jesus remains silent. He refuses to answer even when he is slapped in the presence of Annas. He is then led to this court that we now see assembled in our passage this morning. The the court with Caiaphas, the high priest, and then the Sanhedrin. We might refer to the Sanhedrin, maybe in our vernacular today, as kind of the supreme court of the Jewish world. This is the supreme court in their religion and in the land. And so they've gathered together a quorum, and as they've gathered together, we have this trial of Jesus that is a very formal trial. All the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them include this trial in their accounts, and it's happening in the morning hours on Good Friday, even before the sun has risen. The chief priests and the elders are ready to condemn Jesus, but they have a problem. And the problem is this, is that they need a charge that will stick against Jesus. So we have the court, and now we need a charge, our second point. And so they bring witness after witness in who falsely testifies about something that Jesus did or that something that Jesus said. But the problem is this, is that none of them agree. And if you're going to have a charge that is going to stick in the court of law, according to Jewish law, you have to have at least two witnesses. You can sense the desperation in the passage. Matthew tries to give us a sense of that in verse 60 when he says, At last, at last, two came forward. At last, two came forward that had the exact same accusation and the exact same charge to bring against Jesus. The same false testimony. At last. It reminds me of Psalm 2 where the psalmist says that all the leaders of the nations that they plot together and they plot together to do what to destroy the Lord's anointed but as the psalmist goes on he's saying look what they're plotting it's all in vain it's all silliness because he has all authority and he has all power let's look at this charge against the christ the son of god The charge against Jesus is found in verse 61. They said, Jesus has said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, if you misinterpret Jesus' statement in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, as they're doing here, then you could understand that this is a real threat. This is a real charge. This is the very kind of thing that the Sanhedrin was looking for. If Jesus said that He was going to destroy the physical temple, if that is what He said, then they're ready to go. Because He would be striking out against the very center of religious, cultic, Jewish life. Here He would be destroying the very place where God chooses to meet with man. And He would be disrupting their religious worship. But of even greater significance is this. This is a charge they could bring to the Romans. Because if Jesus was going to destroy the temple, then he would have to lead some kind of insurrection. He would have to be at the head of some kind of rabble. And the Romans were concerned, if not about anything else, they were concerned about maintaining peace in the city of Jerusalem. And they would not allow a man to disrupt the peace. And so they have a charge. A charge that the Jewish people will accept and a charge that the Romans will accept. But the two witnesses are false witnesses. They're referencing Jesus' statement there in John 2, verses 19 and 21, where He says this, "'Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up again.'" Now, the Jews who heard Jesus say this in John chapter 2, they're absolutely shocked. They're listening to these words of Jesus. They're looking at the temple that is right there, and they're flabbergasted. They say, Jesus, it took 46 years to build this thing, and yet you're going to destroy it, and then you're going to raise it in three days. But John gives us insight in John chapter 2. Immediately after they make that accusation and they question Jesus about that, John says this in his own little commentary. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He was speaking of himself. And John is rightly pointing out that Christ is looking at the typology of the scriptures. What do I mean? Well, Jesus calls His body the temple. Why? Well, we got to go back. Let's go back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, if you will with me. In the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve, and they are walking with God in the cool of the day. And when that fateful day comes, and the serpent comes, and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and they take that bite of the fruit, and the fall occurs, what do they lose? What is it that they lose? If you said, well, they lost holiness, you'd be right. You say, well, they lost righteousness. Well, that would be right. Or you'd say, "They, they lost peace. Well, that would be right. But that's not ultimately what they lost. What they lost beyond all else was God. They lost fellowship with God. So much so that He will cast them out of the garden. They lost fellowship with God, but in the midst of that, He makes a promise. That He's going to enter into a covenant with man whereby He's going to save fallen man. And he gives this promise throughout the Scriptures, and it's like a little thread that goes all the way through the Scriptures, this covenantal promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. In essence, I will be with you. You will have fellowship with me again. I am yours and you are mine. And then he gives signs of it throughout the Scriptures. Abraham, I am your God. I am with you. Here is the sign of circumcision in your flesh so that you know that even as you have flesh, I'm with you. I'm yours, you're mine. He gives manna from the sky so that the Israelites know that he is with them. I am your God, you are my people, I'm with you. He leads them in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. I am with you. He gives them prophets and priests and king. I am with you. He gives them the tabernacle. This tent of meeting. Meeting of whom? Meeting of God with his people. I am with you. And it was temporary. And so when Solomon comes along, because David was a man of blood, Solomon then builds the permanent place, the temple. And what is the temple? It is the meeting place between God and man. I am with you. And so what is Jesus saying? He is saying all of these things were shaped, were shadows. They were all types that were pointing forward to me. That in my body, when the Son of God came down from heaven and was incarnate by, was incarnated in flesh, when He became flesh, was born of the womb of the Virgin Mary, that when He came into this world, that now in Christ is a fulfillment. It is here that God and man meet. He is Manuel, God with us. I am the temple. My body is the temple. Now and forevermore, I am where you meet God. John, in his gospel, will, at the very beginning of his gospel, he will talk about this word, this eternal word that is with God and was God. He's talking about the second person of the triune Godhead and he will say there in John 1 that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the temple. And so Christ is saying, it is me. You destroy my body and in three days I will raise it up. So this charge is absolutely bogus. Third, we see the character of Christ, the Son of God, in this text. It's been said of different men, there's no chest in that man. Well, there's chest in this man. He is so utterly calm and he is so utterly resolute before his oppressors that Matthew says that as he stands before these false accusations, that he is silent. He doesn't utter a word. Just as Isaiah prophesied, so it was true of our Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't before Annas, he isn't before Caiaphas. He is just resolute. He was a man of character. What allows Christ to suffer silently like this? Well, one, He knows that this is not the final tribunal. He knows that there is a court above this court that He stands before. Men may render their opinions and even their judgments, but it is not the final judgment. He knows that that is reserved for the eternal judge. And oh, how it would free you and I up to understand that. Second, the Lord Jesus knows that God is a safeguarder of His reputation. There is no concern here with the judgment of these men because God will vindicate His own. Jesus even says it, in three days I will be raised up from the grave. What is that but a vindication? And this is a good reminder for all of us, God is a safeguarder of His people's reputations. Third, Jesus can remain silent because He knows what lies before Him is the will of God. He knows that He's in the Father's hands. And He knows that there is nowhere safer to be. And though the present seems like it couldn't possibly get any worse than it is, He he knows that His Father is governing all, and so there is a quiet confidence as He looks to Him in faith. Jesus is the great man of faith the greatest man of faith. And so he looks to his father. He has wrestled with him through the night in the garden of Gethsemane. And now he comes out knowing this is the will of my Father in heaven. And he is resolute and he is assured and he feels safe even though he knows what awaits him. A sovereign God is a great refuge. I watched uh, movie recently about an uh, English soldier in World War II. It's a true story. He was captured by the Japanese, and he was put into a prisoner of war camp, and it was horrific conditions. They beat the prisoners and starved them. And, but he and some of his buddies created a radio out of spare parts so that they could listen to English broadcasts. And It was a day in which the Japanese found this radio, and so they gathered together all of these prisoners, and they were even more severe than they had been in the past, and they just started going by and beating all the different prisoners, and some just to a bloody pulp. And finally, this man took a step forward, out in front of everybody else. He's taking a step forward and taking the burden of what they were all going to suffer upon Himself by saying, I'm the man. He knew the torture that awaited Him. He knew the price that would be paid and He stood forward. One of His buddies said of Him, that was the bravest thing I've ever seen a man do. I'm finishing a book. This is a regular refrain throughout kind of war history and battle history. You will often hear this refrain, I have never seen courage like that. That is the most brave man brave man I have ever seen. That is, reading. is, I'm finishing a book on Joshua Chamberlain right now, who is the colonel of the 20th Maine, and the great hero of the Battle of Gettysburg. And he will later become a general in the Union Army, and he will be at a battle where he is with his troops. He often, always, until later, led his troops into battle, and there will be a gunshot that goes through his side hip, and it will rip across his insides and his body, and then it will come out his back. And it will create such shock to his body that he immediately collapses and he passes out. And the testimony is is that his entire front of his body, from his chest all the way down to his feet, was covered with blood. A few minutes later, he wakes up, and as he wakes up, he focuses his eyes, and he is at this point in charge of an entire division. And he's watching as his division is turning, and it's running, and his men are being slaughtered. And so he raises up, and though he is wounded in such a horrific way that most men would be dead, He rallies all of his division to himself, and he leads another charge, and he saves the Union on this day. It will be after the battle. He will be laid out underneath a tree, half dead, and his general will walk by. And he'll say to him, Chamberlain, you are a man with the soul of a lion and the heart of a woman. I've often thought about this scene. So I've thought about this call upon our Christian lives. And there is no man that has taken the field like our Savior. There is no man that has stepped forward as He stepped forward and took all upon Him. There is no man that has had more the soul of a lion than Him, and we could say the heart of a Savior than Him. He took it all. I've often thought about the scene as I've thought about the call upon our own lives as Christians were to be people of character. A call to suffer for the sake of the gospel is... Has to be one of the most unique things about the Christian life. It has to be maybe the most countercultural thing about our faith that we expect to suffer. You see this over and over in the scriptures that we're called to suffer in passages like Matthew ten thirty eight, John sixteen two, Romans eight seventeen, Philippians 1.29. But what's fascinating, I think, is that we are not only called to suffer, as countercultural as that is, but we are often called to suffer silently. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not all suffering has to be endured silently. If you're being physically abused or sexually abused, I don't care who it is that's doing it your spouse, your parent your sibling, someone in this church, someone in your business, then you have to let somebody know. And you have to speak. That's not suffering for Christ. You are not to do that silently. It doesn't mean that you and I have to be silent in a democracy as Christians. No, we are to exercise our voice, and yet our hope is still not in the political realm. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we are to suffer silently where we are called to it, where the gospel itself is not at stake. And most circumstances of suffering for the sake of Christ are not these moments. They're when we receive a personal insult or a personal injury or the personal hatred of someone else or a personal mistreatment as we seek to serve and to honor Christ. And what does a person of character in Christ do in such moments? I counseled two different ministry leaders this very week who had been falsely accused of sin and wrestling with this very thing. What, what do I do? When this happens, our first inclination is typically to offer defense. Defense. In most cases, we do so not because our concern is the gospel or Christ or even His church, though we can convince ourselves of that. Most often, our true motivation is concerned about what others will think of us if we don't answer, if we don't defend. And our ever-present desire to be vindicated is strong with us. Rationalizations come fast. I know them well. I cannot allow error to triumph over truth. My reputation is at stake. It will hamper my future ministry or current relationships. I know I am to suffer, but that does not mean being a doormat. And yet, despite these protests, it is more often more wise than not to follow the lead of our Savior, to simply suffer silently. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Peter will speak to this very thing when he is writing that letter of 1 Peter and he's talking about you and I that we suffer in the footsteps of our Savior in this way. We follow in His footsteps. And he says this, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Whose hands are you ultimately in? Theirs or His? Jesus knew that He was in His. He knew it. And so He could stand resolved. He could stand with His unbelievable courage not answering these false accusations. Fear of man must not silence us when we should speak, as when the gospel is at stake. And neither should it lead us to speak when we shouldn't. Fourth, let us consider the condemnation rendered, the condemnation that is rendered. Not sure how we could read a passage like this and, and not be grieved the condemnation that we see, a chant of "He, He deserves death. Has there been a more heinous judgment ever? And the answer immediately is no. He deserves. He deserves. He deserves death. He doesn't deserve. He deserves worship. they're crying out, He deserves death. And then after that condemnation, then they begin to heap on the contempt. They spit in His face. They struck Him. They slapped Him. So many of us have heard this time and time again. You heard me read it this morning. And it's so easy just to kind of move past it. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. This is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. This is the creator of all things. This is the savior of the world. And they're condemning him to death. There's they're spitting in his face. It should rack us. If it doesn't, there's something wrong with your soul. Many of you, I was following the news this week, and many of you saw uh, at the Kaboa airport where there's this mob of people trying to fight to get in. and The Marines are up on the, the fence above, and you saw it, the, the baby that is hoisted up, this infant. and One of those Marines reaches down, and he just picks that child up by one arm and passes it behind him so the child isn't crushed. And child is carried away to safety. I wonder if you'd imagine with me for a second that instead of hoisting that child to safety, that Marine had instead spit in that child's face. The Marine that grabbed the child had slapped the child across the face, and another Marine had punched that child and then As part of their condemnation, they threw that child back into the crowd to face death. The fact that I just used that illustration has some of you internally disturbed with me. You rightly find it offensive. We would all say, You have no right to spit in the face of that child. You have no right to strike that child. That child has done nothing, nothing to you. Jesus is more innocent than any child. He committed no sin. He did no wrong to anyone in any place ever. and he is condemned, and he is spit upon, and he is slapped, and he is turned over to death. You are to read this passage, and if you don't read this passage, and hear this passage, and you are not outraged, there's something wrong. You're to be outraged. But here's the mistake. We don't want to make. We don't want to be simply outraged. There's been this passage and later the passage before Pontius Pilate where the Jews call out for the blood to be upon their heads that Christians have used through the centuries and have used to our shame to condemn Jews. But if you truly understand this passage, it's not just outrage that you have. If you're reading through the New Testament ethic and the New Testament letters, then as you read this passage, you realize that those screaming out for him to be put to death, it wasn't simply those Jews. You begin to understand that it wasn't simply Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin that is condemning him as a sinner but that he is condemned as a sinner because of our sin. And that in a very, very real sense, it is you and I that are also there and calling out, put him to death. And so the right response is outrage, but it's not just outrage. The even better response is confession. And it's repentance and it's faith. And when that's the turn, when you read this passage and you begin to understand this passage, it's not just a passage of outrage and confession and repentance and faith. It also becomes a passage for rejoicing. Because Christ loves His enemies. He loves his enemies. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You were an enemy. And he loves his enemies. So much so that he is willing to die for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do forgive them. But here's the final point. The scene was not the conclusion. They thought this was the end of this Christ, but Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, knew better, and he proclaims it very clearly in the midst of this trial that a greater conclusion is coming. Verse 64, I tell you from now on, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, he immediately tears his garments. And he declares that Jesus has just committed blasphemy, but this is not blasphemy. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, and he's quoting from Daniel 7, these Old Testament prophecies to speak about the Christ that is to come in speaking about himself because He is the Christ who was to come. Caiaphas has asked the right question right before Jesus makes this proclamation. It's the right question, the right question that you have to ask and that I have to ask. It is this question. He says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then he takes it one step further. He calls down the very authority of God and he puts Jesus under oath. He says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus will not remain silent. He's now under oath. And so, He's going to answer. And He says, you have said so. Now, some will read this and they'll say, well, Jesus is being ambiguous here. You have said so. That seems kind of... hmm. He's not being ambiguous. Note the high priest's response. He immediately reacts. This is blasphemy. Tears his garments. This is not ambiguous. What is Jesus doing? He's using wisdom. You illustrate this way. If someone came to me and they said, Jason, are you a fundamentalist? I'd say, well, you've said so. I, I I don't want to deny that I'm a fundamentalist. I'm also not sure that I want to affirm that I'm a fundamentalist. Not according to what they believe a fundamentalist is. Fundamentalism, that term developed in the early 1900s when Orthodox Christians are fighting liberal Protestantism. And so they come up with these five fundamentals, and they say, these are things we cannot move from. We hold to these. We hold to the virgin birth. We hold to the inerrancy of the Scriptures. We hold to the, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. We hold that He was truly crucified, and we hold that He will return again in the second coming. Those were the fundamentals, and so they were fundamentalists. I will not deny that I'm a fundamentalist, I'm a full blow-and-going fundamentalist. But if, by fundamentalist, they mean narrow-minded, insular, opposed to drinking and dancing and drinking, then I'd say, and playing cards, I'd say, well, I might be some of those things, but I have pretty good dance moves. I'm not a fundamentalist like you'll describe it. That's what Jesus is doing here. You've said so. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, but not the kind of Messiah in Christ you expect. You expect one that will come in and dash all the Romans. You expect one to set up an earthly kingdom right now that is a political kingdom. I am not that Messiah. But I am the Messiah, and so he goes to the prophecies of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. I am the Messiah of the Scriptures. You have said so. Now let me describe to you what he is and who he is, who I am. He says, from now on, you will see me as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He couldn't be more clear. He's the Christ. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the great I am. With all power and all authority. And they're condemning him. Friends, there is real reality here that Jesus is telling us the word of this court is not the final word, that there is a final word to come. Whatever the world says, that is not the final word. There is a final word to come. He will sit on his judgment throne, and he will judge all. This one who is a man of men, this man of faith beyond all people of faith, this one that is truly willing to step forward and carry all the burden upon himself. There was no one who had such courage as this. One who truly has a soul of a lion and the heart of a savior. It would be too late when he comes upon the clouds. You have to be gripped by a passage like this today and seize upon him today. He loves his enemies. And if you are not in him today, you are an enemy. Ah, but he forgives and loves his enemies. And he brings them home that we might have fellowship with our God, in Him the true temple forevermore. He reigns. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do exalt You. We give praise to you for the sending of your Son, and we give praise to you, O Lord Jesus Christ, that you are a lover of sinners, that you were willing to step forward knowing that this kangaroo court, with its false accusations, was worth your enduring, that the cross that was set before you was worth enduring so that you might save your people. And now that you are seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, having all authority and all dominion, we give you praise with all the angels and the archangels and look forward to that day when you shall return upon the cloud and you shall exercise your just judgment and all shall be set right. Help us to persevere in the midst. Help us to cling close to You. Help us to be willing to suffer for the sake of the Gospel. Even as You, our Lord, was. It's in Your strong name, Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.